This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. We are live at Harvard Business School in Boston. This is pretty exciting. It's very exciting, right? When you think about top-ranked business schools, I mean, this is it. And so we're going to be hearing more about the community, about the teaching, some of the classes that they're doing, and we're going to talk to some of the prominent alum. But before we do that, we've got to bring in the editor of Bloomberg Business Week, Joel Weber, because Joel, I mean, Business Week magazine, they are known for their business school rankings. Yeah, that's been like one of the core competencies of the magazine for almost, for more than 30 years now, right? And we've only tried to make it that ranking be more dynamic every year. And it's gotten incredibly good now. And you have the ability to personalize it based on your interests. Right. What's important to you, so right, as a student. Which just speaks to like what, you know exactly what you would expect to get from something that's this dynamic. So you can bring something like that to bear in a place like Harvard. And it's just amazing to be here. You know, I'm like up in this Baker Library. And there's a table over there that's been there for 150 years. It's just un- incredible to have this kind of pedigree here. And when we think about what, what, what we try and do at Business Week, a lot of it is to take the, the story of modern business mm-hmm. and then tell it with a, a lens that I kind of think of as like a pop business kind of way of interacting with it. And when you interact with people at the business schools where some of our curriculum enters that classroom, it's sort of an incredible experience for them because they, they can tell it's almost like law and order. We're like ripping it straight <laughs> out of the headlines and bringing it into classrooms and helping people understand what modern business That's really looks like. That's a great point. Like. Well, and I also love the fact that this is a year-long franchise. I mean, I feel like back in the day, it was mm-hmm. all about the rankings, but some of the content you have this week, really, you know, you survey the students as you, as you were talking about. It's very dynamic. It, it never ends. And this is a, an interest for people ongoing. It's not like it just is like once a year. So what we've come come to is this cadence that we can't stop talking about this stuff enough. And this week's data from the survey that we leaned into revealed actually some really interesting stuff about student debt, which is usually something we associate more with undergrad right. than graduate schools. And yet we're we're look this data reveals that the survey respondents have, you know, six figures of debt coming out straight out of business school and then it hovers there. It's funny that you say that because I think that's actually one of the things we're going to dig into with um, one of the individuals who's involved with the MBA, MBA program here at Harvard about the future of the MBA. You know, what is needed? What is it that, you know, the business community to ultimately want? And to bring it back, you know, this is the thing that you always hear about here is going to be ROI, right? And yeah. it's that return, return on investment. investment. <laughs> and, but what's the initial value? And, and really, what is the career trajectory that that degree might help you accomplish that you wouldn't accomplish Without it, right? right? That's ultimately why you do it. And also because as a place like Harvard reveals, there's a network. Yes. Right? And that network is really what it ends up being all about. Well, it's funny. I mean, just to make it a little bit personal for me, I mean, I'm back here. I lived here in 1980 and 81 when my dad was a student here. You were six? And I was about five, <laughs> six years old. I went to David L. Barrett Elementary School around the corner. Yeah, you're still paying that I off. Do, I still, <laughs> and I still, public school. And I still do think about, you know, the people, candidly, that my dad keeps mm-hmm. in touch with uh, from those days. Yeah. And I was talking about that with some of uh, the faculty, for sure. We got to ask you about this week's 
issue of as you do. well because it's super dynamic. The cover is devoted to Pride. Pride. Yeah. So this month, Pride Month, uh, 50 years after Stonewall. So we wanted, you know, that, that anniversary is just coming up in a matter of days. So this was a way to mark that moment uh, and talk about not only the progress that's been made, but also some of some of the fragility that remains with sort of the gay rights. Mm-hmm. And there's a number of uh, court cases that we talk about that will be heard in front of the Supreme Court. And, it, you know, every, everyone might take this for granted that everything's, you know, safe these days, and it's not. That's what really surprised me, Joel, that I had thought that there had been so much progress on the legal front. You think about the Supreme Court decision, and yet there is still a lot of legal framework out there that that really restricts the LGBTQ community. And, and we're talking about it on a federal level, right? Yeah. There's nothing that really protects it. And it's a state-by-state level at this point. And some states obviously have made much more progress than others. And that's what, you, you know, you can't take any of this for granted. So 50 years later, a lot has been done. A lot of the package of stories, and, and especially the cover that we talk about, is how far businesses come in mm-hmm. championing their, their workers to make sure their workers have rights. But the U.S. is in many ways even an anomaly compared to the rest of the world. So there's this international aspect that we brought to bear on it. And then I thought one of the things that was really interesting was this idea of rainbowification, yeah. of rainbows on everything all of a sudden, right? And there's a lot of businesses that deserve that and also ones that are, are carrying something that there that they maybe well, should. And let's talk about what I think is my favorite story in the issue. And we were talking about it over dinner at my house last night, which is the Ellen Walmart mm-hmm. story. Yeah, I think this one is just the perfect encapsulation of it. Ben Steverman and Matt Boyle wrote it. And it really looks at Ellen, who's become almost the Oprah of the day. And this... It's really phenomenal how big of a business empire she's built. Right. She owns daytime television. It's just amazing. And this is a woman, when she came out as a lesbian, basically was dropped. Business didn't want to associate with her at all. There were bomb threats on the studios. And here we are, not so not so long after all that, and America's biggest retailer has now partnered with her to bring out an Ellen line. And a retailer that has had a complicated history yeah. with this issue. For every step forward they've taken, it's at least a half a step back over time. I think that's really what makes the story that compelling is that Walmart, Arkansas, had this real, real legacy that, especially in the gay rights community, it was not a champion of, right? But over time, it's changed. And Walmart has had to wrestle with that. And if you're if you're Walmart and you're up against the Amazon mm-hmm. Amazons of the world, right. you need every advantage you can get. And when you look at Ellen and what I mean, she is so family friendly, right? That's one of the quotes that we got in the story. Right. You just associate at every age level, this is a person who actually just brings goodwill into and, business. And moves product. And moves product. Well, That's why. To tie it all right? together, here we are at Harvard Business School, and I think about so well-known for their case studies, like Walmart alone and how far they've come on this issue in particular. That's a case study in its own. A case study that you'll read in Bloomberg Business Week. Yeah. Not Harvard <laughs> Business Week. You can read it but in just, real time. Yeah, exactly. There you go. All right. Joel Weber, thank you so much. Of course, Joel Weber, editor of Bloomberg Business Week magazine, which is hitting newsstands as we speak. You can find the stories, too, on the Bloomberg and at Bloomberg.com. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. We have a special guest, Scott Sperling. He is co-president of THL. Nice to have you here with us. Thank you. And you're class of 1981. I am class of 1981. Wasn't that just a couple years ago? (laughs) Just yesterday. Well, you know, it's so funny. The inflation rate was more than 10% back there. Then DeLorean cars were just making their debut. I mean, what do you remember of that era? 
Uh, I do remember a couple years later after I graduated, and I met my wife here, and she was a year behind me at school, and we borrowed $2,000 to buy our first condo, and the interest rate was 17% on the mortgage. A the price time. per square foot was about a tenth of what it is today. So uh, it was a very different time than it is today. What was your biggest takeaway from, from going to school here? You came here for, after graduating undergrad from Purdue, right? From Purdue. So I came directly from undergrad from the Midwest. So I had no idea what an investment bank did. I had no idea what a consulting firm did. I took a summer job at McKinsey, not because I knew what they did, but because it was the highest paying job I could find and I had a lot of student loans. So it was a real education for me to come to this place. Uh, the, um, the nature of the education here is really spectacular and it has been consistent for such a long period of time. And the teaching methodology, the case method is one that I think really leaves students with the ability to start to think about things on their own, be willing to engage in that verbal combat, if you will. I think they've toned it down a little bit, but the verbal combat that prepared you for whatever came next. When I took my first job after graduation at the Boston Consulting Group, because I wanted to stay here in Boston, one of the first things I remarked upon is, wait a minute, where's the case? Where's all the data? And they said, well, that's what you have to do. You have to go put that's, that together. Right. But the methodology works. still use it today, worked. right? Still use it today. It's interesting. It. Well, and I'm curious about the case studies that are being written about some of the companies going public today and that they can stay private for so much yes. longer. What do you make of that environment? Well, I think there's been a uh, real willingness on the part of private uh, investors, particularly venture capital and late-stage venture capital firms, to invest enormous sums of money in these younger companies. If you go back years ago, the whole game was startup venture capital, right. and the amount of, of total capital available for a company was constrained in uh, ways that are very different than the world of today. So when you have a, a soft bank out there with the Vision Fund willing to invest billions of dollars, that would have been enormous relative to the public market in right. the public offering providing capital. So it's been able to fund business models that are highly capital consumptive. Now, the valuations that are being put on these companies with the business models not yet fully proven, you know, I, I can't really opine on that. I'll let the, my colleagues on the public markets do that. Uh, but they do have the ability to stay uh, private longer. I would also note that... Is that a for, good thing, though? Well, uh, it's probably a good thing for many of the models that are, are utilizing huge amounts of capital, um, because for a very long time, in order to go public, you had to show that you were at least uh, a little bit free cash flow yeah, positive. Right, right. Now you clearly don't have to do that. And so how does it change your mode of buying and selling at, at this well, so point? So for us, we're, trying to, we're, we're buying companies. We've always been investors in growth-oriented companies. So if you go back in our 40-year history, uh, and over the time I've been with the firm, we've looked for the um, sectors that have better than GDP growth. We try to find uh, sectors that have very good long-term secular growth drivers to them and try to invest in these companies in order to build them into a much better enterprise. So we're buying companies that are already proven to be free cash flow generative. We're trying to buy them and then work with the management teams, bringing our own operating expertise to bear so that we can improve all of the key business processes of these companies in ways that allow them to take market share in order to grow their revenues more rapidly and hopefully to be more efficient in generating 
uh, various metrics of profitability, whether it's EBITDA, free cash flow, or net income. And so in this market, given, every, given everything that's going on in the world, are you a buyer or a seller net uh, at this so point? So we're both. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> net is hard to say. It depends yeah. on the quarter that we're looking at. We've been uh, enormous sellers. Uh, it's been a good time to be selling. But we really target just a few sectors for buying. Mm-hmm. And again, it's sectors that we think have very strong secular growth drivers to them. And right now? And so um, we just announced uh, the uh, acquisition of a company in the automation space. Um, we have acquired a series of companies in that uh, space. We think that's a 20-year secular growth trend. Uh, it's been a very lucrative area for us in terms of returns. Uh, fintech has been an area that we've been very big in for a very long period of time. Well, what did you, um, having said that, what did you think about Facebook this week in terms of talking the, about their cryptocurrency? About their cryptocurrency. I've never been that big a believer, to be frank, in cryptocurrency, which has largely been seen as an investment vehicle as opposed to truly a mode of currency exchange. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's the differentiation they're trying to make, and we'll see if that works for them. I, I've, I, you know, I'm old-fashioned, going back to that 1981, I've always believed sovereigns should be the ones who issue uh, currency, and, uh, but... What do I know? What's it like raising money uh, out there now? What are you hearing from investors in general? What's the mood of the institutions as it relates I, to private equity? I think especially? private equity has been a really strong performer. You know, we've all seen the data. It's outperformed every asset class over uh, intermediate to long term. It outperforms in periods of um, extreme uh, economic difficulty. So that has increased the popularity of private equity uh, over the course of the last decade, in particular over the last four or five years. So, um, uh, you know, it's not been a bad time, let me put it that way, to be an a investor in private equity. Scott, just got about 30 seconds yeah. here. The, all the macro issues, does it shape how you're buying or selling uh, right now? So for six years, I've been thinking we're within two years of a recession. Uh, I make <laughs> all of our pe- Yeah, I make all of our deal teams incorporate a... Uh, a recession into uh, their base case. They've uh, been laughing at me because I've clearly been wrong. Uh, it seems that we keep we see more and more difficult macro issues, and the market just tends to get over it really quickly. So again, I'm it's not remarkable. smart enough to know uh, you know uh, whether that's a good or a bad thing. But teach your children well. Well, here at Harvard Business School, we're going to be talking a lot about the case method and the educational backbone Mm -hmm. of Harvard Business School. But someone who's really thinking around the corner about education is Sal Khan. He is the founder of Khan Academy. He is an alum of this fine institution. And his success in really teaching has led to an enormous uptake uh, in the Khan Academy. He joins us on the phone from Mountain View. Sal, great to have you with us. Thanks for having me. All right. So so tell me a little bit about your experience here at at HBS and sort of how it set you on on your course. You know, my my whole decision to go to HBS was, uh, uh, you know, I was working in tech. My original background was in math and computer science, so I was working out in Silicon Valley. And then the the first dot com bubble burst, and I thought, hey, it might be a good idea to uh, to spend a couple of years and think about my my life and what I want to do with my career. And I also wanted to broaden what what people kind of thought of me. Uh, you know, th- think of me more the, than just a techie. And so I, I went to, to HBS, and I have to say it was, a, it was exactly what I hoped it would be. It, it was a very uh, broadening experience, and it, and it really gave me uh, not only the background, but I would say the confidence to, to 
to to think about uh, how to make make change in, in systems. Well, you definitely have made change. And, you know, before we got going, Jason and I were talking about, I know my daughter has loved going to Khan Academy, looking at videos, especially for math many times. You've had some 18 million learners use Khan Academy every month. You're also doing um, some new things with uh, NWEA. Talk to us a little bit about what you guys are up to. Yeah, as you mentioned, uh, your daughter is, is is one of many millions <laughs> that come uh, yeah. on, on a monthly basis. A lot of them just want uh, help with one concept or another. Uh, but we're seeing uh, more frequently teachers using us as a core part of their curriculum, and we're seeing if students even put in forty five minutes a week. Uh, that they're growing 20-30% faster uh, than than they otherwise would have, which is pretty significant. And so we've been forging partnerships with various folks. Uh, we famously did the partnership with College Board a few years ago, where uh, Khan Academy is now the official practice for the SAT. And the PSAT exam, which most American students take, when we took it, it was just this random test. Now it acts as a diagnostic for personalized practice on Khan Academy in math and in English and language arts. And then we can we can figure out how it helps those students as they go from the PSAT through Khan Academy to the SAT. And so the partnership that you just alluded to, this is we're we're trying to do a similar notion, but do it at lower grade levels. So the Mm -hmm. NEEA MAP exam, it's not as much of a household name as the SAT, but it's taken by 25% of all uh, grades three through eight students in the country. And uh, until today, uh, or recently, it was it was just it was a standardized test that students would take to benchmark where they are. But now it'll act as a diagnostic for Khan Academy, and then those classrooms are going to be able to put hopefully at least that 45 minutes or hour a week. And then the the districts, the principals, the teachers are going to get uh, information on where their students are and what kind of interventions they can they can make above and beyond uh, the software. So we're excited because we think it'll, you know, our goal as a not for profit is just to move the dial for for as many students mm-hmm. as possible, and we think this is going to be a, an important vector for that. Well, and Sal, it does feel like it's fair to say this has been revolutionary for, for a lot of families, mine uh, included as well, and many friends. Uh, are we at some sort of catalytic tipping point in terms of online learning? What have you sort of learned, as it were, from your experience about where we may be going in the short term? I, you know, I, 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 I do think we are at a tipping point, and it's hard to say how fast things will tip. Uh, you know, they, they tend to, yeah. to start to tip a little slower than expected, but once the tipping happens, it tends to happen quite fast. I, I think you're going to see, uh, so there's the work that's happening in classrooms, and I have to say, you know, over the last 10 years, uh, we have seen, uh, you know, I used to preach this whole idea of mastery learning, that the reason why most students are struggling, it has nothing to do with their innate ability, has nothing to do with the concept. It's because a traditional academic model, you push students together uh, together at a fixed pace, you get a 70% on an exam, you didn't know 30% of the material, too bad, you move on to the next concept, which builds on that, that 30% gap. And that keeps happening, and that's why we have a situation where 70% of the kids in America have to take uh, remedial math when they show up at, at a community college, which is a, a euphemism. For, for sixth or seventh grade math. And so, so you know, as... Oh, go ahead. No, 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 please finish. Oh, oh so, you know, w- one of the values we think of, of a Khan Academy is definitely access. Anyone in the world could now access things that might have been uh, behind closed doors before. And not only can they access it, but they should be able to access it in a way so they can learn at their own time and pace. So you only know 70% of a concept, don't move on to the next one. Take the time mm-hmm. necessary to get to 80, 90, 100% of that concept. So we think we can move the dial there, and I think the other tipping point is what's going to happen in credentials. Uh, obviously, everyone's talking about a trillion and a half in student loans that aren't cancelable by bankruptcy. 
uh, people are questioning the value of a, of a right. college degree. Yeah. And I think right. there's going to be, um, we, are, we are talking to employers about, hey, what kind of signals do you need that we Got can it. provide uh, that, that can be as good or better than well, a college degree? Yeah, it's definitely a strong conversation that everybody's having right now. Sal Khan, thank you so much. Founder of Khan Academy on the phone from California. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. Live at Harvard Business School, and we're here with John Compton. He runs Bain Capital, a little shop we've heard of it, a little over $100 billion under management. Thanks for having us in your hometown, Thank you. your adopted hometown, uh, I should say. So take us back to your time here uh, at HBS. It's 25 years ago. I guess, you know, you, you forget a lot from 25 years ago, but you don't, you don't forget HBS. Um, I remember uh, in the very first class I had, I was amazed at global diversity. I mean, this is 25 years ago. Um, and I was in a class with uh, people from Korea and China and, and Africa and, and, of course, Europe and Japan. And, and so I was just amazed at the fact that they could attract these type of people um, from all over uh, to sort of get an education all together in the same spot. Um, where I learned from their experiences, which were quite different than mine, uh, having grown up here in the U.S. And I always think about something, John, like those, those educational experiences like the one you had here, you know, what, what stays with you or how it shaped kind of where you are 25 years later? You know, it's, it's funny because, you know, Harvard has a very specific way of doing things. Um, they try to take all of their cases, and they're the case approach, right, right. Um, and everything is from the prism of a leader. Uh, here I am, 26 years old. I'm not a leader, or at least I didn't think of myself as a leader. Um, but those cases that you do over and over again every day in all these different environments, in all these different types of uh, operations, strategy, uh, globalization, all these things that we did, um, we had to become a leader every day in that classroom with 89 other yeah. classmates looking at you, challenging you. Um, and that, that ability to, to be able to, to think on your feet uh, to be able to take a position, to have a voice, to have a point of view, to back it up with facts. I think those types of skills are incredibly important in the, in the business world as a leader today for me, and, and it stayed with me for the entire time. It's interesting you say that. We caught up yesterday with Tony James uh, over mm-hmm. at Blackstone, and, and the way he said it is, you've got to learn to hold your own. You know? <laughs> and he was, about, you know, he was about your age when, when he came uh, through as well. You know, came, he came right out of uh, undergrad, and so it's a maturing uh, for sure. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about the world that we're living in uh, right now because it is a, an interesting one, to say the least. You're a global investor. Uh, you see all sorts of crosswinds, I would imagine. As you look around a week that we hear, from the Fed, we're looking ahead to, to the G20. How did geopolitics figure into your investment thesis right now? Well, it's, it's complicated. I mean, I think the, the level of disruption that, that might arise by virtue of the direction of, of different sovereign nations about what they intend to do to protect IP, the trade war, of course, is, is on everybody's minds. Um, the element of, of the overall economic policies of, of what is going to happen with central banks you know, these were fairly stable over the 30-year career I've had in private equity, but they're, they're pretty complicated today. And, and uh, frankly, the valuations that we've seen haven't really incorporated right. some of that complication. Why um, is that? Is it because there's a lot of money out there, John? Maybe? I think there's a ton of money and yeah. there's a lot of hope. Yeah. Um, and I think generally, you know, even back when I started in private equity in 1989, people talked about the fear of what was going to transpire, but it takes a while before that really to take, take hold and get reset in valuations. Um, so it wasn't until 1991 where we really saw a recession. We really saw 
uh, the downturn that it actually uh, began to uh, to be realized in valuation. Um, we saw it in pockets. China, first right. quarter of 2018. Uh, we saw it, obviously, in the fourth quarter last year as well in, in the U.S. Uh, and the rest of the global market. So it's out there. Was that a valuation? Everybody's saying, okay, things are overdone. Or was it a miscue by the Fed? Or was it, what was it? I think there's a lot of short-term orientation okay. to it. But there's enough fear out there. We're 10 years in to the, to the cycle. And, and certainly there are these disruptive factors that are out there. Um, so I do think that people do have fear. So when they hear some things that are disruptive, mm. um, I think valuations get reset pretty quickly. And so with that backdrop, are you sitting around with your partners and saying, you know what, we may need to lean into selling things uh, right now or could, to continue to sell things? Where's the balance there? Well, first of all, I, I, I believe that the valuations peaked, uh, certainly in the private markets, a couple of years ago. Because okay. um, the rates have come up to some degree, um, in the U.S. at least. Um, and I do think that the industrial cycle, particularly in auto, for instance, in certain areas of industrials, has reset. Um, and certainly with uh, the public market uh, reset and valuations for, for industrials, we're seeing that in the private markets as well. Hmm. Um, so we're seeing a great deal of industrial pipeline that's coming in to, to, to evaluate. Uh, but it's also tricky because you know, there will be a cycle during our investment horizon. So you need to build that into your investment thesis. Where are you guys finding opportunities? I know you just did it. Was it like a $900, $900 million fund? a second fund for life sciences. And I know that's something you look at very closely. Yeah, healthcare is a big area for I us. Know, uh, we I invest know. early stage, we invest late stage, uh, we invest through our credit funds. And so healthcare has always been a big, big part of our, of our strategy. But actually, healthcare itself, in each of our verticals, we're going deeper and deeper. So life sciences is an example. We want to be not just a, a biotech early stage investor, we want to be in the inflection capital business. So we did this strategic relationship with, uh, with Pfizer, where we took their entire CNS platform, carved it out, put it into a new company, and now we're building a company with Pfizer that's going to be a leading CNS player. You, you don't see biotech venture capitalists do that. You don't yeah. see private equity traditionally do that. But because we're so deep in life sciences, we have those capabilities to do late-stage inflection capital for life Christian, sciences. Because you have the knowledge. And scale of capital. Yeah. Um, both the capabilities to understand it, capabilities to build companies, and then capabilities to deploy large-scale capital behind that. What are you avoiding right now? Anything high-priced. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, where are you finding things most high-priced? No, I think that we have been uh, of the view that ever since uh, the recovery where a lot of money has gone into, um, you know, stability kind of deals, deals that are kind of low-growth, um, deals that basically you know, don't have discontinuity and change, they're actually pretty stable, a lot of people are going to those safe havens and paying up for that stability and leveraging it to very high levels, higher and higher every year. And so from that perspective, we think there's a, a real re-rating risk for stable assets that have been overpriced because of all the liquidity and because of all the credit uh, support that they've gotten from central banks. So Harvard has one of the largest MBA programs in the world. Involved in shaping and running that program is our next guest. Jan Rifkin is Senior Associate Dean, Chair of the MBA Program, Professor of the Strategy Unit here at Harvard Business School, and with us on site at Harvard. So nice to be here. Thank you, Carol, and welcome to Harvard Business School. It's a treat to welcome you both to the campus, and thanks for bringing the show here. Thank you so much. It's really a delight for us. And talk to us a little bit about when you do shape the MBA program. We talk so much, Jason and I, about the world, so many 
industries, so much of what we do, the processes are being disrupted. How do you guys apply that to what's going on here and what you want to teach your student body? No, it's a great question. Um, can I put it in the context of overall Harvard Business School and what's going on? Sure. The MBA program is very much our flagship, but there's a lot of other things going on here that I think will help address your sure. question. Um, so the MBA is indeed the flagship, about 1,850 students. But in addition, we welcome about 11,000 executives to campus each year to hone their leadership skills. We've got a doctoral program that trains the next generation of faculty. We've got our publishing arm that takes ideas out into the world through vehicles like Harvard Business Review and um, case studies go around the world and our newest venture, which is Harvard Business School Online to learners around the world as well. I was actually checking that out last night. It's really amazing. Like More and more people want to learn that way. Yeah, Yeah. And, and we're trying our best to make sure that that is just as engaging that's what happens in our classrooms yeah. with case studies. So, and how do you do that? I mean, yeah. because that because so much of right? this it, we hear about business school is about that human connection. About you know, we just heard from John Connaughton about being in the room and right, you know, right. sort of being with those other students. How do you sort of transfer that? So, I think the key is to make sure that there's not a, just a talking head that is coming at you, as you see in most massive open online courses. Instead, there's a degree of interaction with the online content but also with other learners around the world. So the interaction with human beings, I think, is crucial to any learning experience. Yeah, that's interesting, too. And I I do think about, you know, we increasingly, technology kind of rolls into everything we do, but that relationship, I was just talking with um, various CEOs and some leaders at an event back at Bloomberg, and that whole idea of how technology can kind of take you away from having those one-on-one face-to-face relationships, and that is so crucial in today's world. And actually, when we look at the priorities we've got for the curriculum, like what do we need to do next for our students, it turns out that two of those three, maybe all three of our main priorities have to do with the relationship with human beings. Hmm. It's not Sounds simply so simple, technology. Right? <laughs> it is about the people in a, in a very fundamental way, I think. And so when you think about yeah. what happens after they leave here. Career placement, I believe, right, also right, right. Uh, you work uh, very closely in as well. A lot of people make a big investment to, to come here in some form or fashion, whether it's as an MBA or executive or even you know learning online. How has that changed over time? And, and, and what are you seeing in that evolution in terms of careers? So probably the most interesting thing I see among our students is that they are interested in purpose in their careers. It's not all about the paycheck. The paycheck is important, mind you, but they're trying to have both purpose and a decent paycheck. And I think that changes how they think about their careers and how they think about what they're going to do here as well. So has that changed the type of company that you're inviting onto campus or has it changed that part of the equation or no? So we look for a broad range of companies. Our students actually lead us in this. Mm -hmm. They tell us what they're looking for. Mm -hmm. And we do see significant shifts in how they're searching for jobs. So as recently as five years ago, about 70% of our students found their jobs through the on-campus recruiting, the traditional recruiting. Today, that's down to about 50%, and I expect it will go down even lower. So they're looking for things that are very much targeted to their interests, and they're willing to look and create the job search themselves, do a network search, often through our alumni base. 
Jan, to find the thing that matches their needs. One thing I want to ask you, and we yeah. kicked it off with our Joel Weber, um, editor of Bloomberg Business Week yeah. magazine. We've got a story online this week that's just talking about student debt, specifically MBA yeah. candidates. And I do think, Absolutely. I'm curious about the conversations you folks are having here at Harvard Business School and Harvard at large, you know, in terms of return on investment, where yeah. students are looking the amount of debt that they have to take on to go to a great institution uh, like right. the Harvard Business School. Tell me what you guys are, are talking yeah, about so, when it comes so to that. So for area. sure, our students ask questions about return on the MBA investment. And we like that, right? We like to have people here who are thinking about right. what's the return on investments. And they've had good reasons to question it. The tuition costs have risen over time. Um, and they also have to take off two years, two years mm-hmm. out of the workforce right. in order to come here. So we have to make every day count. And we've done a few things to try to make sure that we have the MBA program be accessible to anyone with a talent and drive to be admitted, right? I mean, it's important that we bring in anyone who has that talent and drive. So we have very generous financial aid. Um, The typical students, about half our students have financial aid. The typical package is about $80,000 for the two years they're here. And um, the revenue of the MBA program is about $140 million. We almost immediately give $40 million of that back in financial aid. The other thing we've done recently this year is we have frozen the, um, uh, the tuition and increased financial aid hmm. in order to make sure that the MBA is affordable and accessible and particularly to get the great diversity we need on our campus. A lot of what our students are doing when they leave here is managing diverse workforces, supplier bases, customer bases. We need that those human differences reflected in our campus. What we're as hearing well. as we talk to your alum right. here on our program yeah. today. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I want to ask you about the the product, the curriculum, a little bit because yeah. you guys have stuck to this sort of general management uh, approach, not Absolutely. going down the specialty route that other uh, of your competitors have. Why? So a lot of our competitors have launched these specialized, shorter in, uh, master's programs in data analytics, supply chain management, financial engineering. And I think those are great products for a particular type of learner. Harvard Business School, our mission is to educate leaders to make a difference in the world. And just as you said, Jason, our focus has been on general managers, the people who set the overall direction of enterprises. And in that context, what we're doing basically as the world zags, we're zigging, and we're zigging harder than ever. The bet, the bet is essentially that as specialized knowledge becomes more important, the value of managers who can look across those specialties and knit the pieces together, the value that they have individually and the value they can create in the world gets bigger and bigger. We we do, though. I have to say that we do. We do couple our expertise in general management here with programs elsewhere at Harvard. So just yesterday... We announced a new master's in life sciences, for instance. Right. Joint program. So you're mixing and melding among the different... Breadth and depth. Um, Jen, thank you so much. Great to get some insight into the program overall. Thanks for having us. Welcome for being here. Beautiful space. Jen Rifkin is Senior Associate Dean and Chair of the MBA program here at Harvard Business School. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. All right. Well, our next guest has a fascinating remit of sorts. And as we've learned a lot about him, I've gotten more excited about more and more excited about talking to him. George Seraphim is here. He's a professor here at the Harvard Business School, professor of business administration. He's been teaching since 2010. And 
He focuses a lot of his work on ESG. And first of all, great to have you here with us. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. So before we get to ESG, though, I actually want to go to something that uh, <laughs> He's you been very wrote about, about recently uh, in Harvard Business Review. It's about money laundering and, and, and corruption and white-collar crime. And we've talked a lot about that on our show and written a lot about it in Bloomberg Business Week. It feels like we're at a moment where there's a lot of this happening. Why? A lot of this is happening, and in our research we have found that this is primarily a cultural problem and a leadership problem. It is not a compliance and control systems problem. So what we have found is that leaders really, they don't create the type of culture inside an organization where people can act with integrity. Let me give you a very concrete example of that. For example, one of the things that we have found is that the severity with which perpetrators of white-collar crime, they're punished inside an organization, is declining with the seniority of the perpetrators. So more senior people are getting more lenient punishments, and that is especially true for uh, male perpetrators but not for female perpetrators. Wow. So how can you expect to create a culture of integrity inside the organization if you're actually playing favorites? This is just a simple example of how it I am like Master floored. just physically recoiled. <laughs> um, so many different places to go. First, I want to go to, I would have thought, I guess I would have hoped that after the financial crisis that we would all be rethinking leadership and we would think about a moral compass and we would think about ethics and doing the right thing. Has nothing changed after the crisis? I do think we're making progress and we're moving in the right direction. And just to give Well, we're not making progress if men get off and women don't. <laughs> <laughs> we're not making enough progress but anyway, for sure. Go ahead. Uh, absolutely. I think we have long ways to go uh, to get there. But I do think that there is an increased realization inside business, inside organizations, that these are issues that we really need to pay attention and tackle. And this is what's happening here at Harvard Business School as well. So, for example, in a course that I teach uh, with my colleague, Professor Rebecca Henderson, it's called Reimagining Capitalism, Business, and Big Problems. We introduce to students many of those dilemmas and problems, and we really make them think hard about how they would act and how they will manage those types of problems inside organizations. This is a course that has gone from 20 students to 300 students. This is an indication wow. of how we are training a new generation but of I leaders. Ha- but I have to say that I would think that most of us in a study group or in an academic situation would do the right thing. But why, what happens... Oh, hap- that's adorable. I know. No, 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 but I really do think. But what happens to when you're in this setting and then you get out in the real world and everybody kind of... Not everybody, but people forget to do the right thing. And this is absolutely a problem of sitting in a classroom and in a seat and trying to make the right thing and then facing all the constraints and the realities and you're making a very different choice. Actually, this is the power of the case method and putting a person in the shoes of a protagonist and having also the protagonist of the case in the classroom that then you can reflect and have a discussion about what is happening. So, uh, for example, in this HBR article, we have an interview with Eric Sosmundsen, who is uh, the CEO of the largest waste management company in Norway. Mm -hmm. We have written a case on him and how he was facing with grand level and systemic corruption inside the organization. What did he do 
when he took over to turn around the organization. So these are the real-life situations that right. students are getting exposed to. Right. And, and that, it can be done. And that is the case method, right? Yeah. I mean, right. You're, you have to look at real-life examples. It's not uh, hypothetical. Uh, well, let's talk a little uh, ESG because you know we heard from uh, Jan Rifkin, the senior associate dean here, that you are attracting a population that is very interested in jobs that mm-hmm. allow them to do good. Uh, how do they? How do they do that? Where are they? Where are they going? And what are they learning in order to uh, sort of enable them to get there? There are multiple career paths. One of them is at uh, the corporate sector. So increasingly, many more companies are having real integrated corporate sustainability strategies that they are trying to drive financial performance while trying to drive also social impact. Another avenue is within the impact investing and ESG investing space in the investment markets. What started from a niche, I would say, and specialized market now has exploded to be within the hedge fund industry and the private equity industry and so forth. And of of course, a third career path would be within the consulting world. Right. So all the big consulting firms are developing practices and many more that I can keep going on. George, we just have about 30, 40 seconds left here. I do think ESG has gone from a niche and just being kind of the right or feel-good way of investing to actually showing performance. Are we seeing that more and more? More that, and That more. you can do, yes. do good, invest in ESG, but also see those performances that are comparable to other asset classes. Yes, and I think the key and the key concept is materiality. How those ESG issues are becoming financially material and as a result affecting the value creation process and the competitiveness of economies, of corporations, and in general organizations. And this is what we have found in our research, that those issues are becoming financially material and as a result they are affecting growth rates, cost of capital, and profitability margins. Fascinating conversation. Thank you so much. Sounds like you have fun teaching. And Absolutely. Student body. George Serafim, he's professor of business administration at Harvard Business School, joining us on site at Harvard. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. We're live at Harvard Business School, and we've gotten a chance, Carol, to mm-hmm. talk to some, I, I'm just going to say it's a very distinguished uh, alumni here. Yeah, and we're absolutely. so excited uh, to have one here with us in the Baker Library. It's so beautiful here. <laughs> Kelly Morrell, she's a managing director. She works in the Tactical Opportunities Group at Blackstone down in New York. She's here with us in Boston. Kelly, great to have you with us. Thank you so much for having me. All right. So I have to say, we've talked to some other alum, but you're one who is actually here in this century. <laughs> and Ouch. not only that, but you were here during the financial crisis. I was. What was that like? So it was an incredibly unique experience. I feel like uh, our class in particular, coming out of HBS in 2009, you know, there weren't that many sort of traditional job opportunities. And so you saw people really doing incredibly innovative, slightly different things. A number of my classmates ended up starting really sort of renowned companies. I did something very, very different. Took my financial services experience moved down to Washington, D.C., and ended up joining the Obama administration, where I worked on the bailouts of Chrysler and GM during that period of time. Phenomenal experience, really sort of unprecedented, hopefully once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. <laughs> Talk about that, though, from going from the classroom, right, then also then all of a sudden going to the government, the practical, and yeah. having to figure stuff out. What was that like? What did you have to think about? Absolutely. And so I think, you know, prior to going to HBS, you know, I really had spent a lot of time working on financial institutions. I was an investment banker at Goldman Sachs. And going down to Washington at that point in time, 
you know, it was a really unique experience because you had a number of people from different backgrounds, Republicans, independents, Democrats, who really brought their sort of financial and Wall Street experience to solving pretty tough problems that no one really had the answer to. And so I was part of a small team that took GM and Chrysler through bankruptcy. When the companies emerged from bankruptcy, I ended up being the point person on Chrysler, um, which basically meant that I partnered very, very closely with the CEO, uh, the late Sergio Marchione, um, and Richard Palmer, who uh, was the CFO at that point in time, helping them think through their strategy, their viability plan, how ultimately they were going to be successful, and really figure out how do you drive uh, value for the shareholders, which really were the American taxpayers at that point in time. And you stay in the, essentially, the distress restructuring business. That way you go to CIT, a well-known name uh, to a lot of folks on Wall Street. What was that like? And then how do you ultimately get to to Blackstone? Sure. So I really liked this intersection of working on complex strategic problems that really sort of had an M&A component to them where you could affect change. And so I was looking for an opportunity when my time at the government came to an end um, to really work for a new CEO who had worked on a company that also was experiencing, you know, a really strong sort of transformation at that point in the company's sort of corporate history. So I joined CIT where I worked for the CEO, John Thane. CIT had gone through bankruptcy during the financial crisis, was one of the largest lenders to small and medium-sized businesses. I joined as part of the management team really to effectuate the turnaround. I was the chief strategy officer. We ended up doing a ton of really sort of innovative things, restructuring the balance sheet, building an internet bank from scratch, taking it from $0 in deposits to $15 billion in deposits. We exited a number of non-core markets, um, including exiting 26 different geographies. Uh, we bought a bank on the West Coast. <laughs> and uh, one of the last things that I did was sell a large aircraft leasing business. Uh, and I think I can say this, but Blackstone, TACOPS, actually was a bidder on it. They didn't win, um, but I got to know the team really well during that time. But and they got you. When the deal closed, <laughs> perhaps the best prize, when the deal closed, uh, they actually called me and persuaded me to join their team. And well, so you're, you're working for David Blitzer, who we've actually mm-hmm. had yep. on our yep. program in the context of, you know, this little basketball team he owns down in Philadelphia, but also in the context of tactical opportunities. It's a different sort of group within Blackstone. It is. And so we really think of ourselves as sort of Blackstone's opportunistic investing platform. And so the fund was founded in 2011, really on the heels of the financial crisis, to take advantage of sort of an imbalance in the supply and demand of certain types of assets. The banks at that point in time had a lot of non-core assets that they were looking to sell. Traditional buyers of those assets were like the prop desks of Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley, which really had been sort of eliminated or heavily regulated out following Dodd-Frank and the Volcker rule. And so Blackstone at that point in time, partnering with one of our large LPs, saw a really interesting and unique opportunity to take advantage of that type of dislocation. And thus, TACOPS was born. Well, so in this environment today, I mean, what are the opportunities for you folks? Are you buying new companies to add to the existing portfolio? What's the environment like? Sure. Only so, about 30 seconds left. Sure. So I think it's interesting to note that TACOPS actually looks at a number of different market dislocations. So we're seeing things not only in sort of traditional private equity, looking at smaller growth-oriented companies, We're also seeing a lot of interesting opportunities looking at preferred equity in different slices of the capital structure that are differentiating and unique. 
Kelly Morell is still with us, Managing Director, Head of Asset Management in the Tactical Operations Group, Opportunities Group, I should say, at Blackstone. Just call it Tech Ops. I know. It sounds so cool. So where are the opportunities right now? Sure. So, you know, we're actually seeing a number of different sort of market dislocations across the investment spectrum. So one of the unique things about Tech Ops is that we really have a very flexible investment mandate. So you can go in a lot of different places. Exactly. We can invest in any industry, any geography, and really any part of the capital structure. So we're finding really unique sort of differentiated opportunities not necessarily looking at common equity or at debt, but really looking at sort of preferred or other very heavily structured securities that provide us downside protection. Does it matter the industry or no? It doesn't necessarily matter the industry, across the board. Well, and you guys, I mean, one of the flexibilities you have, too, is you get money sometimes for longer durations. I mean, Absolutely. you have these partnerships with your investors that are a little bit different, right? We do. Yeah, we do have a number of sort of separately managed accounts, which are slightly different uh, than some of the traditional private equity funds. But you're right. We can hold some of our investments for a longer duration. Um, we can do things in terms of co-invest that are always a little bit slightly different. And that's one of the benefits of TAC Ops. Kelly, I think about how much time at Bloomberg we talk about these big macro issues that are mm. out there, whether it's trade, with the Fed's going to do, what the economic situation's going to be. How does that factor into your discussions that you guys have at, back at Blackstone? Absolutely. So I think one of the challenges, actually, in having a portfolio as large as the one that we have in TAC Ops and really as diverse as it is, you know, we touch a number of different geographies, everything from Argentina to Indonesia to New Zealand and That'll Australia. Keep busy. <laughs> keeps you quite busy. Um, but because of that, we're always monitoring a number of different macro factors, whether it's GDP growth, FX rates, you know, what's happening in the oil markets, because all of those ultimately will impact our existing portfolio, but they also create opportunities for us on the investment side. Right. Kelly Morrell, Managing Director, works in the TAC Ops Group over at Blackstone down in New York with us here uh, at Harvard Business School. Her alma mater, you're a double Harvard, right? I am. (laughs) Great to have you with us uh, here in Boston. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. We're live at Harvard Business School. What a day it has been. We've had a veritable parade of alum and Mm -hmm. faculty experts, and we're not done yet. Bill Kerr is professor of business administration here at HBS. He's on site with us in the gorgeous Baker Library. Bill, great to have you with us. Thank you for coming. Yeah, we love it. (laughs) So I don't tell- think I've ever seen this amount of equipment in this room. <laughs> <laughs> well, so tell us a little bit about the workplace, because I think we spend a lot of time talking about art- artificial intelligence. We talk about mach- machine learning. You know, what impact will this have on our world when it comes to work? How do you see it? How I do you th- teach about it? Yeah, I think we, uh, we start with actually two trends that are impacting the workplace. One is the technology side, artificial intelligence, advanced cognitive uh, technologies, increasingly robots and how they're going to enter the service sector and so forth. The other one, big one, is for us uh, demographics. So an aging workforce and the challenges that's going to impose on the number of workers we have and the responsibilities that they look at. So we're trying to think about things in both the short-run horizon, what are companies doing right now to increase their access to workers, and then over that 20-, 30-year period, how is this going to likely reshape the workplace, and then what can businesses start to do to get a bit ahead of that curve? So one of the things that we've talked a lot about and is very familiar to you is the case method Mm -hmm. here at HBS. It's not hypothetical. It's not theoretical. You're teaching real examples. How do you teach this in real examples? What are some cases that you look at? Well, I think we're still finding our way to the the optimal way of teaching that. True to Harvard Business School's form, a lot of our work is set inside a company, an organization. This could be a Vodafone, it could be a Procter & Gamble, it could be an AT&T, a Walmart. It starts with what are some of the things that they are seeing on the horizon 
And then how are they starting to make actions right now towards things like the gig economy, towards access to workforces, towards the adoption of technology into various processes? And then what do they see on the horizon and how are they getting ready for that future? Well, Bill, I do wonder, you know, we don't go through a conversation without somehow often bringing up the Amazon factor. And I do wonder in your teaching, are you often using that Amazon and Jeff Bezos as the benchmark? We don't uh, use, I mean, the Amazon... Or how do you use yeah, Amazon the, the, as a teaching The tool? Amazon factor certainly comes up, as is the whole reshaping of the yeah. future of commerce. You can start with the implications for the stores and the retailers and go work your way all the way back up the supply chain to the manufacturers. Look for a place where the data and the analytics and the sort of predictive power of technology is reshaping things. The supply chain going into retail is a big one. So that, that shadow looms large. But a lot of times we want to not think about what Amazon should or shouldn't do. It does come up. Right. We're instead looking at companies that have 50,000, 100,000, or maybe 10,000 workers. And they are being impacted by the technologies that are coming mm. to life. The chatbots, the futures of AI analytics, the robots that are going to be entering the fast food uh, restaurants in the future, gig economy. So how are they, well, they can't really fundamentally shape the technology, but are instead needing to keep up with it and transform their workplace. Well, and I feel like we're having some pretty broad societal discussions about this right now. Back to education. You know, we were talking with Sal Mm -hmm. Khan earlier about how people are educated. He's a proud HBS alum, uh, as you know. So there's that factor of it. And and how do you think about educating workers in real time? Because I would imagine one of the things you're talking about is essentially retraining a workforce in real time. Yeah, I think you're I think you're hitting it right on the head. You go out to 2030. We got a lot of big questions as to are we going to you know have 500 million jobs more? Are we going to be down 2 billion jobs? Very smart people can or come to very different conclusions about that. But if you start to come back to today, there's two things that we know for certain. One is that it's going to be very pervasive and ubiquitous. This isn't technological change that's happening in one mm-hmm. sector and it's an isolated issue. Across all sectors we're experiencing this. And second, it's coming at a pace that we've not experienced before. And so we don't have the institution set up to make that workforce transition the way we have in the past where the next generation learned this, you know, the technology and then they went into the workplace and then we sort of retooled over the next 20 years. Businesses are going to have to take a much more direct role in workplace reskilling and training for their own self-interest, but also for society. And they're going to have to work a lot more with the partners in the ecosystem, the community colleges, the universities, to make sure that they're producing the graduates that they need. Bill, what kind of jobs are we not going to need people to do anymore in the future? I don't know whether it's five years, I don't know whether it's 10 years. What jobs do you look at that say, there's no longer we're going to need a person to do that? It's very hard to actually pick it out on a job by job. We tend to think of it more as a task by task mm. kind of role. So what kind of tasks? Yeah, so if you think about uh, technological change over the last century, the tasks that it was most principally connected to were things that were at a very either routine or kind of manual role to it. Uh, and then with the computer, it really went into things that were calculations, mm-hmm. you know, that, that had to be crunched, the number crunching. As we look at the next wave of technologies, they're going to increasingly be going into non-routine cognitive tasks. So things that require an element of, of you know, calculating the predictions of something or what are some likely scenarios. That's stuff that the machine's going to be able to do better and better. Likewise, some forms of first-line customer service, networking uh, optimization, so forth. 
the machines is going to become better at, at handling those things. And then kind of the next level, the ARC is going to be going in, add a little bit of robotics to that. Yeah. That can come more into the service sectors and, and other ways that in a physical relationship or in manual tasks, it starts to, to impact us. But I think if you go through all those points, it's not that we're really going to see too many occupations entirely disappear. The work's going to change. Right. right. So I'm going to steal a, play, a page from the playbook of our colleague Tom Keen here. I want to go back to your, your dissertation, your PhD dissertation, oh, uh, where you talked about... The, <laughs> How'd you find it? Well, <laughs> did some research. Uh, did a little bit of research, but I mean, it's interesting to think about because I'm going to read the title, The Role of Immigrant Scientists and Entrepreneurs in International Technology Transfer. That is very relevant right now as we think yeah. about global yeah. talent. And I know you've recently written a book uh, yeah. about yeah. Uh, global talent as well, The Gift of Global Talent. Talk to us about that, especially in the world we're living in politically. Yeah, so you could think part of our workplace is thinking about how do we make sure frontline workers have the opportunities for the future. There's another level of thinking about the innovators, the people that are coming up with right. these new technologies and shaping that. How well positioned are we to be grabbing that workforce and engaging them uh, for the best uses? So a few numbers uh, back, actually, when I, when I first started this journey with that thesis, uh, about one out of every 10 inventors at that point was foreign-born. Uh, today, the number is one out of every three and a half. Wow. So it is a big contribution that's happening across many different technology uh, fields. And so we have to make sure we have an immigration structure that is able to you know, attract and bring in and... It, Frankly, this is not as crude as this immigration structure we have today. Right. And then if you are a business, if you think about your ability to stay at that frontier of technology, it's moving so fast and so important. Mm-hmm. How are you going to make sure you understand and have access to the places that this is created? Well, so then how do you see, especially when we talk so much now, it feels like about a U.S.-China tech cold war. How do you see it playing out and, and what might China's role be in the future? I think we're going to first see an ever-increasing role of China in the global economy. Uh, they have been on an mm-hmm. you know, ascendancy for, for a while. I don't look at the future and say that we necessarily have to be at loggerheads with each other. In some places, like the Internet domains, it's clear that some differing ecosystems have developed. Right. Uh, and if you're in the Alibaba or the Tencent kind of ecosystems, that's different than if you're in sort of the U.S. and Western Europe. Parts of those are going to continue to advance, and I think we can allow for various you know, shots on goals of how things are going, to, are going to work there. More importantly for us is that today about one out of every ten of our inventors uh, has a Chinese ethnicity or background. Wow. A lot of that is immigration. A lot of it, some of it is second generation. Right. And so we need to understand how we can be attractive to people that want to migrate towards the United States and towards, uh, towards the Western economies and think about the ways that they can be influential in our, our labs and our universities, right. also our startup companies and so forth. Well, you think about the economic momentum, right? right. I mean, this is where it comes from. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, in the long run, innovation is the main thing that moves the, ec- the economy yeah. forward, really creates that progress. You get some things like capital accumulation. They, they yeah. matter, but those are more the short-run things. The innovation is the long-run horizon, and this is the real catalyst that's pushing that. Those statistics are yeah, revealing. Amazing. Bill Kerr, professor of business administration here at Harvard Business School. His book, The Gift of Global Talent, How Migration Shapes Business Economy and Society, incredibly timely, as is your thesis oh, right well. now. Going back to your MIT days. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week. We're live at Harvard Business School. What a day it has been. We've had a veritable parade of alum and Mm -hmm. faculty experts 
And we're not done yet. Bill Kerr is professor of business administration here at HBS. He's on site with us in the gorgeous Baker Library. Bill, great to have you with us. Thank you for coming. Yeah, we love it. (laughs) So I don't tell- think I've ever seen this amount of equipment in this room. <laughs> <laughs> well, so tell us a little bit about the workplace, because I think we spend a lot of time talking about art- artificial intelligence. We talk about mach- machine learning. You know, what impact will this have on our world when it comes to work? How do you see it? How I do th- you teach about it? Yeah, I think we, uh, we start with actually two trends that are impacting the workplace. One is the technology side, artificial intelligence, advanced cognitive uh, technologies, increasingly robots and how they're going to enter the service sector and so forth. The other one, big one, is for us uh, demographics. So an aging workforce and the challenges that's going to impose on the number of workers we have and the responsibilities that they look at. So we're trying to think about things in both the short-run horizon, what are companies doing right now to increase their access to workers, and then over that 20, 30-year period, how is this going to likely reshape the workplace, and then what can businesses start to do to get a bit ahead of that curve? So one of the things that we've talked a lot about and is very familiar to you is the case method Mm -hmm. here at HBS. It's not hypothetical. It's not theoretical. You're teaching real examples. How do you teach this in real examples? What are some cases that you look at? Well, I think we're still finding our way to the the optimal way of (laughs) teaching that. True to Harvard Business School's form, a lot of our work is set inside a company, an organization. This could be a Vodafone. It could be a Procter & Gamble. It could be an AT&T, a Walmart. It starts with what are some of the things that they are seeing on the horizon, and then how are they starting to make actions right now towards things like the gig economy, towards access to workforces, towards the adoption of technology into various processes. And then what do they see on the horizon and how are they getting ready for that future? Well, Bill, I do wonder, you know, we don't go through a conversation without somehow often bringing up the Amazon factor. And I do wonder in your teaching, are you often using that Amazon and Jeff Bezos as the benchmark? We don't uh, use, I mean, the Amazon... Or how do you use yeah, Amazon the, the, as a teaching The tool? Amazon factor certainly comes up, as is the whole reshaping of the yeah. future of commerce. You can start with the implications for the stores and the retailers and go work your way all the way back up the supply chain to the manufacturers. Look for a place where the data and the analytics and the sort of predictive power of technology is reshaping things. The supply chain going into retail is a big one. So that, that shadow looms large. But a lot of times we want to not think about what Amazon should or shouldn't do. It does come up. We're instead looking at companies that have 50,000, 100,000, or maybe 10,000 workers, and they are being impacted by the technologies that are coming Mm. to life, the chatbots, the futures of AI analytics, the robots that are going to be entering the fast food uh, restaurants in the future, gig economy. So how are they, well, they can't really fundamentally shape the technology, but are instead needing to keep up with it and transform their workplace. Well, and I feel like we're having some pretty broad societal discussions about this right now. Back to education. You know, we were talking with Sal Mm -hmm. Khan earlier about how people are educated. He's a proud HBS alum, uh, as you know. So there's that factor of it. And and how do you think about educating workers in real time? Because I would imagine one of the things you're talking about is essentially retraining a workforce in real time. Yeah, I think, you're, I think you're hitting it right on the head. You go out to 2030, we got a lot of big questions as to are we going to you know, have 500 million jobs more? Are we going to be down 2 billion jobs? Very smart people can or come to very different conclusions about that. But if you start to come back to today, there's two things that we know for certain. 
One is that it's going to be very pervasive and ubiquitous. This isn't technological change that's happening in one mm -hmm. sector and it's an isolated issue. Across all sectors, we're experiencing this. And second, it's coming at a pace that we've not experienced before. And so we don't have the institution set up to make that workforce transition the way we have in the past where mm -hmm. the next generation learned this, you know, the technology and then they went into the workplace and then we sort of retooled over the next 20 years. Businesses are going to have to take a much more direct role in workplace reskilling and training for their own self-interest, but also for society. And they're going to have to work a lot more with the partners in the ecosystem, the community colleges, the universities, to make sure that they're producing the graduates that they need. Bill, what kind of jobs are we not going to need people to do anymore in the future? I don't know whether it's five years, I don't know whether it's 10 years. What jobs do you look at that say, there's no longer we're going to need a person to do that? It's very hard to actually pick it out on a job by job. We tend to think of it more as a task by task mm. kind of role. So what kind of tasks? Yeah, so if you think about uh, technological change over the last century, the tasks that it was most principally connected to were things that were at a very either routine or kind of manual role to it. Uh, and then with the computer, it really went into things that were calculations, mm -hmm. you know, that, that had to be crunched, the number crunching. As we look at the next wave of technologies, they're going to increasingly be going into non-routine cognitive tasks. So things that require an element of, of you know, calculating the predictions of something or what are some likely scenarios. That's stuff that the machine's going to be able to do better and better. Likewise, some forms of first-line customer service, networking uh, optimization, so forth. The machine's just going to become better at, at handling those things. And then kind of the next level, the arc is going to be going in add a little bit of robotics to that, yeah. that can come more into the service sectors and, and other ways that in a physical relationship or in manual tasks, it starts to, to impact us. But I think if you go through all those points, it's not that we're really going to see too many occupations entirely disappear. The work's going to change. Right. right. So I'm going to steal a, play, a page from the playbook of our colleague Tom Keen here. I want to go back to your, your dissertation, your PhD dissertation, oh, uh, where you talked about... <laughs> How did you find it? Well, <laughs> did some research. Uh, did a little bit of research, but I mean, it's interesting to think about because I'm going to read the title, The Role of Immigrant Scientists and Entrepreneurs in International Technology Transfer. That is very relevant right now as we think yeah. about global yeah. talent. And I know you've recently written a book uh, yeah. about yeah. Uh, global talent as well, The Gift of Global Talent. Talk to us about that, especially in the world we're living in politically. Yeah, so you could think part of our workplace is thinking about how do we make sure frontline workers have the opportunities for the future. There's another level of thinking about the innovators, the people that are coming up with right. these new technologies and shaping that. How well positioned are we to be grabbing that workforce and engaging them uh, for the best uses? So a few numbers, uh, back actually when I, when I first started this journey with that thesis, uh, about one out of every 10 inventors at that point was foreign born. Uh, today, the number is one out of every three and a half. Wow. So it is a big contribution that's happening across many different technology uh, fields. And so we have to make sure we have an immigration structure that is able to you know, attract and bring in and it, frankly is not as crude as this immigration structure we have today. Right. And then if you are a business, if you think about your ability to stay at that frontier of technology, it's moving so fast and so important. Mm -hmm. How are you going to make sure you understand and have access to the places that this is created? Well, so then how do you see, especially when we talk so much now, it feels like about a U.S.-China tech cold war. How do you see it playing out and, and what might China's be, role be in the future? I think we're going to first see an ever-increasing role of China in the global economy. Uh, they have been on an mm -hmm. you know, ascendancy for, for a while. 
I don't look at the future and say that we necessarily have to be at loggerheads with each other. In some places, like the internet domains, it's clear that some differing ecosystems have developed. Right. Uh, and if you're in the Alibaba or the Tencent kind of ecosystem, that's different than if you're in sort of the U.S. and Western Europe. Parts of those are going to continue to advance, and I think we can allow for various you know, shots on goals of how things are going, to, are going to work there. More importantly for us is that today about one out of every ten of our inventors uh, has a Chinese ethnicity or background. Wow. A lot of that is immigration, a lot of it, some of it's second generation. Right. And so we need to understand how we can be attractive to people that want to migrate towards the United States and towards, uh, towards the Western economies and think about the ways that they can be influential in our, our labs and our universities, right. also our startup companies and so forth. Well, you think about the economic momentum, right? right. I mean, this is where it comes from. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, in the long run, innovation is the main thing that moves the, ec- the economy yeah. forward, really creates that progress. You get some things like capital accumulation. They, they yeah. matter, but those are more the short-run things. The innovation is the long-run horizon, and this is the real catalyst that's pushing that. Those statistics are yeah, revealing. Amazing. Bill Kerr, professor of business administration here at Harvard Business School. His book, The Gift of Global Talent, How Migration Shapes Business Economy and Society, incredibly timely, as is your thesis oh, right wow. now. Going back to your MIT days, great to have you with us. Well, coming up, we have got a very special mm-hmm. conversation with a notable uh, alumnus of this fine Jonathan institution, Nelson. Jonathan Nelson. Providence Equity. We're going to talk to him about his time here. He has been awarded accolades by this school, right. has also made his way into some very impressive deals. And because of his values, in part. So Absolutely. that's something we want to dig into. We also want to talk about the media world with him in the telecom. There's so much happening uh, at this point, so we'll get into that. We will indeed. But first, let's get back to Charlie Pellet. He's got an update on what's going on in the world of business. Hey, Charlie. Oh, well, hello there. I thank you very much. Great conversation. We've got the Dow, the S&P, and NASDAQ all moving higher today. Record on the S&P. Up 27 to 29.54. That was a gain of 1%. The Dow up nine tenths of 1% today, up by 249 points. NASDAQ up 64. That was a gain of eight tenths of 1%. Tenure down 132nd. The yield now 2.02%. Gold up 2% today, surging $27 the ounce to $13.87. West Texas Intermediate Crude up 6%, 57.21 on West Texas Intermediate Crude. Chevron Phillips Chemical Company, a joint venture between Chevron and Phillips 66, has offered to acquire Nova Chemicals Corp. for more than $15 billion, including debt. Uh, this is a Reuters report which cites people familiar with the matter. The index of leading economic indicators an EKG on the economic outlook flatlined in May. And with that story, here's Bloomberg's Vinnie Del Judice. The leading indicators showed no change, the first month without an increase since January, reflecting weak factory orders, swooning stocks, and bouncy jobless claims. A sustained pattern of flat negative readings, and we're nowhere near that, could signal recession ahead. The last time we saw that pattern, 2007, just before the Great Recession. Vinny Dell, Judice Bloomberg Radio. Citigroup CEO Michael Corbat says he would consider joining Facebook's Libra cryptocurrency project. Speaking at a Fortune magazine conference, Corbat said, quote, To my knowledge, the social media company did not approach any of Citi's banking competitors on the project. Again, recapping here, a surge for oil today up 6%, 57.22 for a barrel of West Texas intermediate crude, and a record for the S&P 500 index up 27 points, higher today by 1%. I'm Charlie Pellet, and that's Bloomberg Business Flash. 
All right, we welcome everybody on Bloomberg Television. Of course, our listeners, too, at Bloomberg Radio. A real treat, someone who doesn't talk a lot to the media, but luckily we have him here at Harvard Business School. He's a Harvard Business School alum. Jonathan Nelson is founder and CEO of Providence Equity. Nice to have you here with us. Yeah, thanks, thanks for having me. We back really... on campus. <laughs> How does it feel? Do you come back often? Uh, well, uh, as part of responsibilities for the uh, uh, Board of Dean's Advisors, yes. Although I have to tell you, we do not meet in the library right. where we are sitting. It's pretty neat. And uh, it, it's probably more, a con I haven't been in a library in a long time, sadly. That may be more a comment of um, a point in career as right. opposed to what's happened in media generally, but it could be either. Well, we know you were back in 2014 because mm -hmm. you were recognized with an Alumni Achievement Award. And it was, that was largely around sort of the values with which you have carried yourself since you uh, have left here. Talk about that and, and talk about what you learned here and how you translated it uh, into your career. Well, first, the award, you know, I was humbled uh, by it and uh, surprised. Uh, the dean was clear that um, it was not because Providence Equity had uh, succeeded in uh, my role in that um, as its founder, um, but the values that I had expressed um, in life and in business. And I was so impressed by HBS that A, they were keeping track of such things, <laughs> uh, and B, that they were um, acknowledging it, rewarding it. And so I, it, for those reasons, I was very proud of, of the ward, particularly when I saw the people that had come before me or with me that year. And so I'm, uh, I hope my kids are happy <laughs> about it. And it, it did bring them here. Well, you know, in this world where I think people are questioning um, the values of various individuals, whether it's political leaders, whether it's corporate leaders, tell us about those values and how um, Jonathan, it's impacted your investment strategy. Oh, gosh. Well, um, it's probably never uh, been a good business strategy to talk about politics, but you are asking in part. <laughs> I'm just saying at large. Yeah, no, well, no, but there, is a, there are some serious issues yeah, embedded there are. here because um, uh, CEOs and their boards are wondering, uh, and, and by the way, I think justifiably so, how do they fit in? Um, as uh, leaders, influencers. And, you know, we have political leaders, uh, which, without being partisan, is um, tending to more divisive than uniting, and that's troublesome. Um, there are other forms of leadership. It could be faith-based for some. It could, there are plenty of uh, worthy social causes. We are, and then companies are figuring out their own path. You see some very large companies that are actually taking positions um, mm -hmm. on important issues. Problematic. These are not e easy for big companies. Many of them ha are on the defensive, so that it's hard, uh, particularly in the areas of media and, and uh, technology and communications education. It's, mm -hmm. it's uh, tricky. Um, and then I think the vast majority of CEOs are doing it quietly. They are making their mark. They're doing it uh, in their companies and in how they spend their time out. Um, that's the model that I subscribe to. I'm proud of the work of our portfolio companies uh, and my partners. We are fortunate that in uh, 
in the media business where we focus and have for mm -hmm. 30 years. Actually, this is our 30th anniversary. Um, that we have a chance to convene people to um, get a message out. Uh, we do the Ambassador Theater Group is a good example. We, this is live theater. Yeah. Where, by the way, that in itself is remarkable in a, in a world where media is fast-paced and digital. That is the other end of the spectrum. But we regularly, every day of the week, convene people. And I look at the causes that we have uh, increased awareness, whether it's refugee camps in Europe, a program that um, we've run in one of our uh, theaters, uh, which has had high impact, whether it's improving the uh, and acting on affordability of tickets mm -hmm. so that younger audiences can go and experience right. theater, which is, I think is very important. Uh, affordability of tickets. We're setting aside tickets for every show in, in Europe so that we can increase um, audience participation. And by the way, when you go to a theater, that is, a, it's both a modern and a time-honored version of community. I mean, you literally experience it, unlike all other media, well, except for sports, which we hope we talk about yeah. uh, this well, afternoon, well, as a group. Well, talk about live entertainment, because that's an area where you see a lot of opportunity. Yes. And I was thinking, for the first year, I went to two Broadway shows with my family. I haven't done that in a long time. No, I know. <laughs> but, I mean, what is it? And you see that, though, yes. as an investment opportunity going yes. forward. Live entertainment. Well, we have... Uh, 20 seconds of background, where we started in me media, and it's still one of the three legs on the stool of Providence, it was in distribution. So if you think of media, there's distribution, which is satellite, yeah. cable television, and now telcos, and, and streaming, which probably can't have a conversation without talking about direct-to-consumer. And then we moved into content. And so we're still in both. We're right. still in distribution, which is today mobile and mm -hmm. cable. Um, we were in satellite. And in content. Uh, content, is, for us, the white-hot center of valuable content is not just TV. Or, and by the way, those definitions really are stretched because you typically don't watch on a TV. Right. It's a tablet. Um, is sports. Sports is most valuable live, which is interesting because you can't time shift it. The value of a program drops off dramatically when you don't air it at the time it's played. Many of us have tried to go in a cocoon when you couldn't watch right. a, a sport and, you know, I'll watch it later. Don't tell me later. what happened to the game. Yeah, and yeah. so you don't look at your phone, typically. Right. I don't want to know the score. And even if you succeed in isolating yourself, the experience is not the same. You know that all the fans that you share a passion with already know the answer. Right. And so it's devalued. Right. We love that about sports um, because of its power, its passion, and it's like one of the you know, antidotes to um, piracy because, but by the way, just like live theater, you can pirate it and it's not worth right. anything. Yeah. Yeah. Sports is like that. And so you've invested experientially in really interesting ways. Iron Man, you know, something that, that we've mm -hmm. talked a lot about. Diving certification, that's of great interest to Carol Masser, a uh, very good uh, diver. So what's next? How do you continue this investment thesis and experiences? You know, it's, it's unending. Um, there's no such thing as figuring out what's around the corner and then go, you know, I figured that out and so I'm done. Right. Uh, that's been an unending exercise. Uh, we've been pretty good at that. 
but you can't stand still. And by the way, you're leaning in. I can't say what I think is right around the corner. We're working on it now, right. whatever that may be. <laughs> well, you and could, we may, but, you know. <laughs> yeah. uh, live is obviously a big part of it. Yeah. That's no secret. Uh, and I, I think that this notion that uh, media will belong to only the largest companies, uh, no. What is true, and often confused with that, is franchise, what it takes to be of scale has increased. But there's plenty of room for disruptors because if you ask a CEO of a franchise media company, their leadership will tell you privately that they feel threatened as they never have been before. Franchises mm -hmm. are fragile. Mm -hmm. And that's good news for folks like us who are starting companies or investing in small companies and need to compete with behemoths. And sometimes it's mutualistic. It works well together. That's been true in content and distribution for us. It's true even in new media. So it's pretty exciting for us. Our basic thesis is that as networks get better and better, so that's phones, it's tablets, it's our life. That's what you mean by yes. networks. Hmm? That's what you yeah, mean that's by what I mean by network. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so that's how you consume used to be a TV in a living room. I'm going back decades, <laughs> but just to make the point. Yeah. And today it's anywhere, doing anything, commuting, at home. Actually, most viewing at home is now on a, on a untethered tablet. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Uh, that, in our view, has to raise the value of content. That it's easier to access whenever, wherever. It's convenient. It's relatively inexpensive. Uh, content should be increase in value in the same way that networks are more valuable. So th think of it this way. Netflix will spend $15 billion on original content this year. That's an astounding number. That number was zero. So it's good to be in content creation. Mm -hmm. Right. So do you invest on the content side or the distribution side or both? Both. Both. Heavily We're, weighted toward one or the other or equally? No, it has varied over time. I mean, many years ago it was exclusively distribution. Today it's about 50-50. Um, there is, and we've been on both sides of this fence for a long time, and it's very interesting to talk to participants who historically have only been in content creation, not in distribution or vice versa. And of course, the grass is always greener on the other side to a CEO. I really want to be doing that, not right. just what I'm doing. The truth is that while there are different disciplines, the relationship is mutualistic. Think of a network. Think of a mobile, mm -hmm. which is going from 4G to 5G. It is not worth much just because it's faster it's only worth as much as the value of the content riding on that network. Now, in the beginning, it was just a conversation. It was voice. And then it became data, and then it became then pictures, and then video. But now that it's high def, multiple angle screens, that makes your network more valuable. That's the reason you invest. You're looking for a return on that investment. Right. And so that sounds like a good thing for the network and dependent on content. Content 
is the same phenomenon from the opposite perspective. Your content, I believe, is worth more the easier, the better, faster, more convenient it is for consumers. It opens, it, it, it increases your reachable audience. That has to be a good thing. You learned that lesson with Hulu, right? We learned that lesson in spades in Hulu. Well, what do you think that Hulu, all right, you were an early investor, helped make it happen, multiple owners, now it's back under one owner. How do you, is that good? What do you think of that? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I... Or pick feel, it feels like the child that left home early. But before we were ready. Uh, no, it, it is. Uh, we're actually very uh, proud of what we've done there. I saw Jason Carlyer, the first CEO who we recruited, not from the world of TV, um, who did a great job, and it was pioneering work. When we started, everyone told us we were nuts. Uh, it wouldn't work. By the way, that doesn't that's often associated with things that work out well. Right. But it doesn't mean you're, that's a good strategy because... <laughs> it doesn't always work out. Right, it's often uh, not the case. What about T-Mobile? You were also an early investor in a company that ultimately became T-Mobile. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the government, the Justice Department, is pushing for it to get rid of some assets. Mm-hmm. What do you think about that? Is that necessary in terms of competition? Well, by the way, I'm really proud of the work we did. It was a little company. It's called Voice Dream. Right. Yeah. And we started, literally, when I, when I say we start companies, we do that. We're yes. unafraid of it in our spaces that, where we are focused. We don't do it regularly, but we do it in just about every fund. You'll find one or two uh, greenfield total startups. Hulu was one. Uh, what became T-Mobile was another. And we literally went up against the biggest telcos in the country, uh, buying Spectrum, starting from scratch. Yeah. We had the number of employees you could count on one hand. Uh, became 20,000 by the time we sold to Deutsche Telekom. But that was fun. It really was, honestly. We have to leave it there. Oh, okay. Disappointed. Disappointed. Anyway, that means you're going to have to come back. You're going to have to come back and see <laughs> okay, us. Great I to have you back. here. It's nice to be back. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.